0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 for our time of study in the Word this morning. Uh, For those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue uh, in our study of this Gospel, we come this morning to John 7, uh, verse 1. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 1 through 18. And uh, the title of the message is, Jesus presents himself in the temple. Jesus presents himself in the temple. And there's so much in this chapter. And all we're going to do is look at up through verse 18 today. And that'll leave us with more than enough to digest of the greatness of our Lord Albert Einstein, um, back in his day, was there was a book that had come out uh, on the life of Jesus. It was entitled The Son of Man. And Albert Einstein, uh, the brilliant mathematician and scientist, was asked if he had read the book and what he thought of it. And evidently he had. And he said, The book is shallow. And then he said these words, As a child, I received instruction in the Bible and the Jewish Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus his personality pulsates in every word no myth is filled with such life no man can deny the fact that Jesus existed nor that his sayings are beautiful even if some of his sayings have been said before no one has expressed them so divinely as he unquote sadly as enthralled With Jesus as Einstein was, he never knew what to make of Jesus beyond that and never came to believe in a personal God. It seems that Jesus was too colossal for even Einstein's brain. There is no more important object of study for any of us Than Jesus. And there is no decision that any of us will ever make in our lives more important than the decision of what we will do and what we will make of Jesus. And there's nothing more important for any of us to figure out in our lives than the matter of what we think of Jesus and his teaching. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to reveal himself. He's going to present himself to a throng of confused people. And he's going to tell them the one great precondition for actually coming to know the truth about him. If you do this one thing that we're going to hear Jesus tell us about in our passage today. Jesus promises you that you will come to know the truth about Jesus and his teaching. And my prayer is that you and I will be tantalized by that amazing promise from Jesus uh, this morning. And you say, well, where's the verse where this one thing is? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet. You got to listen to the message and we'll get to that. I can see some of you already reading ahead. Um, But as we come into chapter seven this morning, uh, here's some things that we know already at this point of John's gospel. We know that after Jesus healed a lame man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, the religious leaders uh, got angry with him and they became resolved to kill him. In fact, if you go back to John chapter 5 and verse 18, you will observe that the last thing in the Gospel of John that is said about the disposition of the Jews in Jerusalem toward Jesus is this. It says in John 5, 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking to kill him. In chapter 6, we see that things go differently for Jesus in the region of Galilee, but Jesus' time in Galilee is not without its downside also. Yes, Jesus fed the 5,000 in chapter 6, and these 5,000 responded by initially wanting to make him king, but Jesus, we saw, resisted their efforts and ended up speaking hard words to them that caused many of them who formerly liked him and thought of him as his disciples to withdraw from him and to refuse to walk with him or identify themselves with him any longer. Nonetheless, Galilee was a much safer place for Jesus than the region of Judea. And we learned this in chapter 7, verse 1, where John says, look at the text of verse 1 of chapter 7, after these things, in other words, after the events of chapter 6 that we have been studying in recent weeks, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, John doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus is doing In Galilee, during this time period, he simply skips over this time period and jumps ahead in chapter 7, verse 2, to what is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which actually now puts us six months farther down the road from where we were at the beginning of John 6. How do we know this? If you look back at John 6, verse 4, you will see that the feeding of the 5,000 happened when the Passover was near. And the Passover, as many of you know, was either in late March or early April. So it was in the spring of the year. But in John chapter 7, verse 2 of our passage today, John tells us that the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was near, which now puts us either in late September or early October. It puts us into the fall of the year. So six months have gone by since the events of John 6, and even more months have gone by since we were told in chapter 5, verse 18, that the Jewish religious authorities were seeking to kill Jesus. And here we're now told in John chapter 7, verse 1, that after all of these months, they're still seeking to kill him. And it's in this climate that the events of our passage today take place where we're going to see Jesus uh, going up to Jerusalem and presenting himself publicly in what is going to prove to be a breathtaking move. This is a presentation of himself in the temple that... Will require precise timing and perfect sensitivity to his Father's will, wherein Jesus does not do anything even so much as one minute later or sooner than when he ought to do it based on his Father's will. And if you have your notes with you, the way we're going to break down our study of this passage is we're going to observe uh, three stages. Three stages in John's account of Jesus revealing himself in the Jerusalem temple. And the first stage we can describe in this way, and you can fill in the blank if you have your notes in front of you. Jesus resists his brother's urging to show himself in Jerusalem on their timetable. Jesus resists his brother's urging to show himself in Jerusalem on their timetable. Observe what John says beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths or tabernacles was near. The feast of booths was one of the great festivals of Israel in which the men of Israel would make a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem uh, for a whole eight days, essentially, of celebration. This particular feast was very well attended on the annual calendar of Israel, partly because it came usually after all the harvesting was done and people were in the mood to celebrate and give thanks. And during this time, as many of you know, the Jews were instructed in the law to build temporary shelters and to live in them for this particular week in order to remember the time in their history when they lived in temporary shelters throughout their sojournings in the wilderness on their way to the promised land of Canaan. So during this week across the land of Israel, people would build uh, temporary shelters on their rooftops or in their courtyards or in front of their homes. And during this festival in Jerusalem, campsites with temporary structures would spring up everywhere during this particular week as many hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would populate Jerusalem for the eight great days of this festival. And it's in anticipation of this Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus' brothers approach him with some counsel. Observe what the text says in verse 3. Therefore, his brothers, Jesus' brothers, said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. These brothers of Jesus would be the sons of Joseph and Mary, which would make them half-brothers of Jesus, right? They shared the same mother as Jesus, but in Jesus' case, uh, the father, God was his father. In Matthew 13.55, you can write this reference down, Matthew 13.55, we learn that the names of Jesus' brothers were James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. But John leaves them nameless here. He simply tells us that Jesus' brothers approach him and give him the counsel that I just read to you in verse 3. And if we look closely at what Jesus' brothers are saying to him, we can deduce a couple things about Jesus' brothers. Number one, they knew that Jesus had people who considered themselves to be his disciples from all around the land of Israel who would be gathering in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and that they would be anxious to see Jesus at this feast. Secondly, it seems that these brothers have no doubts about the miraculous works that Jesus has been doing as he's been in the region of Galilee. Again, uh, the Apostle John does not tell us what Jesus was doing during this six-month period, but you can actually read about what Jesus was doing during this time period in the other Gospels. Uh, One of the things he did is he fed the 4,000 during this time period after his feeding of the 5,000 that we see in John 6, and he's healing and healing the sick and casting out demons as well as teaching. So he's very busy, but he's also doing miracles. And his brothers want him to go to Jerusalem and do some miracles. They have no doubt, it seems, of Jesus' ability to perform miracles. Their concern, though, in coming to Jesus seems to be that Jesus seems content To simply do these miracles in the backwoods of Galilee, which in their minds is tantamount to doing things in secret. It's like doing miracles in Beaumont when you could be doing them in Los Angeles when the world is assembling there for the Super Bowl. That's the way they're thinking. They don't understand why Jesus would be milling around in Galilee when a greater audience is available to him in Judea, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles when hundreds of thousands of people could see Jesus perform the kind of miracles that Jesus is doing in Galilee. So they say to him in verse 3, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. In the mind of Jesus, brothers, this feast of tabernacles is a perfect opportunity for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and begin to assert his dominance on the world stage when many pilgrims would be gathered and many of them be ready to do his bidding, if he would just show himself conclusively to be the Messiah that he is. So Jesus' brothers reason with him in verse 4 by saying, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They're kind of saying, Aren't you the Messiah? If so, and if you can really do these miracles, then go up to Jerusalem and do some miracles and show yourself to the world. Now, on one level, as we have read thus far, it sure sounds like Jesus' brothers are all for him as the Messiah, right? But look at John's explanation for why they are urging Jesus to go to Jerusalem and show himself to the world. In verse 5, John says, for, in other words, here's why they were saying this to Jesus, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Wow. This little tidbit of information that John gives us will surely strike us as strange after reading what they just have been saying to Jesus in the preceding verses. So the question we would be left asking is what's going on here? Well, some commentators suggest that Jesus' brothers are being ironic or sarcastic in their advice to Jesus. They suggest that Jesus' brothers are talking to him the way that, like we today might talk to a charlatan faith healer That we know is a fraud and that we might say to that faith healer, how about you go into the hospitals in the area and just go from room to room and heal all the sick who are there? That will show everyone that you truly have healing power. Such advice from us wouldn't mean that we believe that such a person can actually heal but it would reveal that we're wanting them to realize that they really can't heal like they think they can. This interpretation of verse 5 is possible, but it's actually not the only possibility. I tend to agree with those who suggest that Jesus' brothers actually do believe that Jesus is a miracle-working Messiah. After all, they had to have seen Jesus do miracles with their own eyes. The problem, though, is that while they may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they're not believing in him as the Messiah that he actually is, but they're only believing in him as the kind of Messiah that they want him to be. According to this view, Jesus' brothers are just like the crowd that we saw in John 6 that wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king after their own desires. Jesus' brothers know that Jerusalem will be teeming with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims and they want Jesus according to this view, to exploit that opportunity and go to Jerusalem and perform miracles and show everyone that he is their kind of Messiah. In other words, they want Jesus to act the way they themselves would act if they were the Messiah. And they want Jesus to act on their timetable. And you can sense their frustration with Jesus in their words, they're saying to Jesus, quit dilly-dallying in Galilee and go to Jerusalem and assert your dominance on the world stage and, and, and come with us and that we'll go with you in that as you do all of that. Either way, we understand what we see in verse 5. Observe Jesus' response to his brothers beginning in verse 6. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. When he says my time is not yet here, he's saying, at least in part, my time for going up to Jerusalem for this feast is approaching, but it is not yet arrived. In a broader sense, Jesus is also saying to his brothers, my time for showing myself to the world is not yet here. It will come soon enough, but it is not here just yet. The truth is that this moment in which Jesus will show himself to the world will come six months from right now. Jesus is right now just six months away from what we call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his death that follows later that week. Jesus then says to his brothers in verse 6, But your time is always opportune. And in saying this to his brothers, Jesus could be saying, Your time for going up to Jerusalem for the feast is always opportune. In other words, you can go up anytime you like because you don't have the kind of complications that I have with Jerusalem. You're not under the same calling that I have. It's also possible that Jesus is making a spiritual appeal to his brothers, saying to them, your time for responding to God's call to believe in me for the Messiah that I am is always opportune. You guys are trying to get me to seize the opportunity to show myself as your kind of Messiah right now. But I'm saying to you that you should be seizing the opportunity to believe in me as the Messiah that I actually am. That's where your focus should be right now, not on trying to school me and how to exploit my moment of opportunity. Again, either way we understand what Jesus says in verse 6, his meaning in verse 7 is absolutely clear. In verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus is saying, You guys are telling me to show myself to the world. Little do you realize the truth about the world that you're wanting me to show myself to. The world loves you because you're just like The world. But the world hates me because I expose the sin of the world. I bear witness to the truth about the world and I testify honestly that its deeds are evil. That's why the world hates me. And that even includes the world of Jerusalem and Judea. It seems here that Jesus is faulting his brothers for having a worldly conception of Him as the Messiah. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but their visions for the kind of Messiah that Jesus ought to be are shaped by the world, not by the Father. Their ideas of the kind of Messiah Jesus should be are so shaped by the world system that the world would absolutely love Jesus if he was his brother's kind of Messiah. But what we learn here is that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah who caters to his brothers or caters to the desires of the world. He's the kind of Messiah who confronts the world, just like he's confronting his brothers here. And he tells the world the truth about itself that its deeds are evil. And the world despises Jesus for that. Jesus then concludes his words to his brothers in verse 8 saying, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Now, when Jesus says here, I do not go up to this feast, he's not saying I will never go up to this feast. Instead, he is saying, I am not right now going up to this feast. When he says, because my time has not yet fully come, he's actually implying that his time for going up is very close, but it has not yet fully come. So he's saying, I'm not going up right this minute with you brothers of mine and the reason is is that my time for going up is almost here but it is not yet fully arrived what his brothers would know for sure from jesus words here is that jesus was not the least bit interested in adapting himself to their timetable but that he was seeking to track perfectly with his father's timetable. Jesus is also making it clear to them that when he does go up to Jerusalem, he won't be going with his brothers, even though you know these brothers would have loved to have their Messiah brother going up publicly to Jerusalem with them. As the commentator Linsky says, Jesus' brothers would love to see their brother in a grand triumph at the capital with the nation bowing at his feet and with them right beside him basking in the glory of it all. But Jesus tells them, you guys go on ahead without me. And evidently they did. Observe what John says in verse 9. Having said these things to them, He stayed in Galilee. In other words, he stayed behind in Galilee for an unspecified amount of time while his brothers went on ahead of him to the Feast of Tabernacles without him. But Jesus didn't stay behind for long. And this brings us to the second stage in John's account of Jesus presenting himself in the temple. Number two let's word it this way, Jesus secretly goes to Jerusalem. Jesus secretly goes to Jerusalem, yet still garners much attention. Observe what happens in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Now, We don't know how long Jesus stayed behind after his brothers would have departed, but at some point, Jesus decides to travel up toward Jerusalem, and when he did, John says he did so secretly, and once he arrived, he carried himself in such a way that he blended in with the crowd without anyone knowing who he was. We don't know if Jesus traveled by himself or were his disciples with him. All that's clear from John's language is that he was incognito. And no one knew who he was. What's interesting, though, is that even though no one knew that Jesus was now there at the feast, he was still very much at the forefront of everyone's mind. Everyone is talking about him. For starters, observe what happens in verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Keep in mind that the Jews, that expression is speaking of the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders in Jerusalem who were expecting Jesus, no doubt, to make some appearance at this feast. And so they're continuously looking around for him as the feast is now well on its way, or underway, and they just keep asking, where is he? They want to know where Jesus is because they want to have him arrested so that they can kill him. And it turns out that these religious leaders are not the only ones talking about Jesus. The masses of pilgrims are also. Observe what John says in verse 12. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. We will learn in the next verse that Jesus doesn't make his appearance publicly until the middle of this festival week, and that probably is what accounts for the grumbling that is going on. That word grumbling speaks of complaining. John's use of the word grumbling indicates that these are conversations characterized by complaint. And among the complainers, John says, some were saying he is a good man. It's possible that those who were saying this were defending Jesus and speaking highly of him. And maybe some of them thought that he was the Messiah. But it's also just as possible that some of these people are voicing their opinion about Jesus in light of their disappointment in him. Their thought might be, we thought Jesus might be the Messiah, but he's not showing up and taking the reins and asserting himself the way that we would have expected. So maybe he is just a good man whom we mistook for the Messiah. At the end of verse 12, John tells us that, look at the text, others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. In other words, in their minds, Jesus was emphatically not a good man, but an evil man who was guilty of leading the people away from the path that they should be walking Perhaps some of those speaking these words perceived Jesus as claiming to be the Messiah and they concluded that he's deceiving people and making this claim to be the Messiah. Or it's possible that some who were speaking these words saw Jesus as one who knows he's not the Messiah, yet He evidently enjoyed toying with people's hopes and dreams about him being the Messiah. Either way, what we have here are two emphatically contrary opinions about Jesus that are rippling through these crowds of pilgrims. Yet what everyone seems to have in common is that they all wanted to talk about Jesus. And there is a complaining tone to what everyone is saying. Notice John's wording in verse 12. He tells us that there was much grumbling among the crowds, plural. This wasn't just an isolated conversation or two. It seems that wherever Jesus went, as he anonymously walked through the different crowds of pilgrims He could hear people grumbling and arguing with one another about him. And what adds to the unpleasantness of these grumbling conversations is that they are being held in hushed tones. In John 13, Jesus says, Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. In other words, for fear of the Jewish authorities, whom they know didn't like Jesus. So anyone who thinks Jesus is a good man is being very careful about saying that too loudly. And even the people who think Jesus is a deceiver are being very careful not to say that too loudly for fear that they might draw undue attention to themselves from the religious leaders you get the sense here that the Jewish authorities didn't want anyone talking about Jesus at all, and everyone seems to know that. What is evident by this point of the narrative is that the atmosphere is electric with interest in Jesus. The religious authorities are looking for him and asking Where he is, everyone else seems to be talking about him and arguing over who they think he is. And there is an air of grumbling over the fact that, as we're going to see in the coming verse, they're halfway through this week of festivities, and Jesus has thus far been a no-show. The Apostle John has very skillfully brought us along in his narrative and and if you're really imbibing what John is saying um, then you should be feeling anxious as a reader for Jesus to make his grand appearance onto the scene and resolve this tension and ignorance and confusion about him and that's exactly what happens next which brings us to the third stage of John's account of Jesus presenting himself or revealing himself in the temple. Number three, Jesus enters the temple and teaches, making three great declarations. Jesus enters the temple and teaches, making three great declarations. Observe what happens in verse 14. But when it was now... The midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. So the week of festivities was already in full swing. Jesus has been incognito. But somewhere towards the middle of this week of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus takes his position at center stage. And the way John words it, he went up into the temple and he began to teach. John doesn't tell us what Jesus was teaching, but you can bet that he was talking about matters related to the scriptures, to the law of God, talking about the true God, in the human soul, and about himself as the Savior whom people need. It is noteworthy that Jesus does not show up and do miracles like his brothers were hoping that he would do. Instead, he shows up teaching truth because that was their greater need. But boy, was his teaching amazing enough. Look at verse 15, where we're told how the religious leaders responded to what they hear as they listen to Jesus teach. It says in verse 15 the Jews then were astonished. The Jewish religious leaders are astonished. These are the people who wanted to kill Jesus, but right now they are distracted with astonishment. And they can't seem to believe the words of truth that are coming out of the mouth of Jesus. All they can do in this moment is sit there or stand there frozen and listen to Jesus with begrudging admiration. And they're wondering where he got this teaching from. According to verse 15, the question that they're asking is, how has this man become learned having never been educated? Literally, in the Greek text, here's how this reads. How has this man come to know letters? That's what they're asking. How has this man come to know letters? Or how has this man come to know writings? Or perhaps better, how has this man come to know scriptures, which are the writings? They're listening carefully to Jesus' teaching, and they're trying to recognize the particular rabbi or rabbinic school that he sounds like, and they can't identify any rabbi or school of thought that would have taught such things the way Jesus is right now teaching. Back in this day, teachers in Israel would make their points and they would seek to support every point they made by quoting extensively from the rabbis. But Jesus evidently never quotes from any rabbi to provide support for something he's saying. He speaks like he's the final authority on whatever matters he's teaching about. And so these Jewish religious leaders are left astonished. And the question they're left with is basically, where did this man come to know scriptures from like this, having never been trained by Any rabbi, and the tense of the Greek verb translated saying indicates that they were asking this question repeatedly as they listened to Jesus teach as he went from topic to topic to topic. Well, Jesus hears their question, or he at least perceives it in his spirit, so he answers the question by uttering three great declarations. And the first declaration is in verse 16. Observe what Jesus does in verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Notice the language Jesus uses. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me jesus i think and see that these jewish religious leaders are taken aback with the wisdom that he is speaking a lesser man would have observed that and responded by maybe gloating a bit at least inwardly and taking credit for what he is saying but not jesus he says my teaching is not from me But my teaching is from the Father who sent me to speak these words to you. I get my teaching straight from the Father, and I make it mine, and I speak it to you. Jesus then utters a second declaration, and this one is regarding how a person can come to know for sure that the first truth that he declares is really true. And I must tell you that verse 17 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is a verse that grabbed my heart when I was 18 years of age and gave me both conviction and hope. If someone in this crowd is really wanting to know the true nature of Jesus' teaching, Jesus tells them how in verse 17, where he says this. Listen to these great words. If anyone... Is willing to do his will, speaking of the Father, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. The statement by Jesus shows every one of you how you can know the truth about Jesus and his teaching. And what Jesus says that you must do is very simple. It's radical, but it's very simple. He doesn't say if anyone is really bright and intelligent and goes to seminary and gets straight A's through seminary, then he will know the true nature of my teaching. Jesus doesn't say if a man is willing to take the time to study comparative religions And investigate the claims of all religious faiths and search out all that science and history and archaeology can teach him, then he will know the truth about my teaching. No, Jesus simply says, if anyone is willing to do the Father's will, he will know of the teaching that I am teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. It really is that simple. A person of below average intelligence with zero education, who has a heart that is willing to do God's will, will know the truth about Christ's teaching far better than the most intelligent and educated college professor who hates God will ever attain to. What Jesus is saying here is so simple, and yet there's something in all of us that wants to make things more complicated. A few years ago, Elon Musk shared in an interview that what drives him to send rockets into outer space is his craving to know the meaning of life. In an interview, he said, let's get out there into outer space and find out what the universe is all about. How did we get here? What is the meaning of life? Unquote. On one level, I respect and appreciate the fact that Elon Musk is open enough to let the world know that it is fundamentally religious questions that drive him to do what he does and to send rockets into outer space. But let's also appreciate the fact that Jesus does not say, in verse 17, if anyone is willing to spend billions of dollars to send rockets into outer space, he will know the truth of my teaching. No, Jesus simply says, if anyone is willing to do God's will, He will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. The problem with us in our fallen state is that we would all rather follow our own will than God's. Many people will study to know the teachings of Christ, but they will do that so that they can then, at the end of their study, make a decision about whether they want to submit to it or not. Sometimes, even as Christians, we can pray for God to reveal His will to us. But deep down, what we're really asking is for God to reveal His will to us so that we can then examine His will and decide whether or not we want to follow it. Even worse, there are people who occupy themselves with trying to get God to conform to their own will. They're trying to make God willing to do their will. They search the scriptures to find support for their own will and consider themselves done when they find a proof text that fits with their agenda. And such people are like the crowd in John 6 as they try to take Jesus by force in order to make him nothing more than an advocate for their own selfish agenda. Such people will never know the truth about Christ's teaching because their focus is on their own will and trying to get God to be willing to do their will rather than them being surrendered to his. But Jesus is calling upon every person who wants to know the truth about his teaching to have an attitude wherein they come to God and say, God, I I don't even know what your will is yet, but whatever your will is, I'm telling you now that I want to do it. I may not even understand the truth about Jesus and his teaching just yet. But whatever, God, you want me to do with Jesus and his teaching, I'm telling you right now, I will do it. And Jesus is saying anyone who has that kind of surrendered heart, ready to do God's will, God will never withhold his truth about Jesus from such a person. Jesus is saying, God will show such a person, whether my words are from God or from myself. This declaration in verse 17 is a profoundly clarifying statement by Jesus, and his words are like a two-edged sword that just cut in two directions. On the one hand, his words give hope to the humble pursuer of truth, right? Assuring them that if they have a heart surrendered to God, God will show them the truth about Jesus. But Jesus' words cut the other way also, teaching us that if a person rejects Jesus or is perpetually in doubt over what to make of Jesus over a prolonged period of time, Jesus is making it clear right here that their problem is not a lack of evidence. Their problem is that their hearts are not really submitted to God's will. Because if their heart was submitted to God, they would know the truth of Jesus' teaching and follow it. I should also say that Jesus' words here are also designed to show every one of us our spiritual poverty. When we hear Jesus say, if any man is willing to do God's will, he will know of the teaching. um, I don't know that any of us should go, oh yeah, got that, check that box, that is totally me. No, we ought all to feel conviction in our hearts for all the ways that we have not been willing to do God's will. And we should confess our rebellion for what it is and ask God to do a miracle in our hearts, to change our hearts, to bring it into alignment with his will, which is so much better than our own, right? Think of all the trouble you've gotten into following your own will, Don't think of God's will as some lame thing and your will is the grand thing. And it's like, well, I got to give up my will and settle for God's will. No, Jesus is trying to lure us into God's will, which is the grand thing that will utterly blow you away ultimately. And it's your will and my will that are the lame and puny and petty and dangerous thing that it is. Can I get an amen? amen? And Jesus is trying to get us swept up into the grandiose will of God to where we're no longer saying, my will be done, but we can truly begin to pray to the Father, your will be done. Such a person, God will lavish his truth upon That's the promise of Jesus here. After saying what he says in verse 17, Jesus then utters a third declaration regarding how he speaks and what that reveals about him. In verse 18, he says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, and that's me, by the way, Jesus is saying, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus is saying any person who simply speaks from, their, from out of their own head is a self-seeker who is chasing after their own glory. But the person, or, and a person who like listens to their own heart and simply speaks what their heart tells them to speak is someone who is self-seeking and seeking their own glory. But Jesus is saying that's not Me, I speak from the Father, and I am seeking the glory of the Father who sent me. And the fact that I am speaking from the Father and seeking the glory of the Father who sent me tells you two things about me, Jesus is saying. Number one, I am true. In other words, I am the genuine article and truthful in everything I speak. And number two, there is no unrighteousness in me at all. This is an amazing double assertion by Jesus in verse 18. In Romans 3, 4, the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. And here Jesus is saying, I am true. And in the Old Testament, the Bible says more than once, there is none righteous, no, not one. But here Jesus is making the staggering claim that there is no unrighteousness in him at all. No one else has ever spoken this way about themselves. No one else ever could. But Jesus does and he can. And he is either telling the truth about himself or he is a despicably arrogant liar. There is no middle ground with Jesus. So keep in mind that in saying what he says here, Jesus isn't just challenging the claims of those who thought of him as a deceiver who leads the people astray. He's even challenging the claims of those in this crowd who thought of him as merely a good man. Jesus is eliminating both of these options. He's neither a deceiver nor merely a good man. He is declaring himself here to be God's Messiah. He's not a deceiver. He's not just a good man. He is the ultimately true one. And he is the ultimately good man. He is the son of God, worthy of my faith and your faith. Jesus, just as we close, has taken his stand before the massive crowds of people who are confused about him. And I can just uh, feel the rush of people when word begins to spread. Jesus is over here and he's teaching and And so many people are gathered and they're listening to him as he makes these statements, making himself known through his teaching at this Feast of Tabernacles. These people are spending their nights in makeshift tabernacles to commemorate their sojournings in the wilderness. And here stands before them the word of God who is tabernacling among them. And he has just declared three things to them. Number one, my teaching comes from the Father. Number two, the surrendered heart will know the truth about my teaching. And number three, I am true. And there is no unrighteousness in me. There is no legitimate reason to reject me for the Messiah that I am. And my question for you this morning is, do you agree with Jesus' declarations here. I hope you do. And if you don't, your lack of agreement with Jesus' declarations here reveal more about you than they do about him. For Jesus says, if anyone is truly willing to do God's will, he'll know of the truth about my teaching Which means that if you don't agree with Jesus here, you don't have a heart that is willing to do God's will. That's how God views your refusal to embrace the truth about Jesus. You see, you and I are not entitled to have just any opinion of Jesus that we like There's only one right opinion about Jesus, and any other opinion is not the will of God. And there's only one way to arrive at that right opinion of Jesus, and that is to get off the throne of your life and let God be on that throne. Submit to God and be ready to do His will with regard to Jesus, if you and I do that, Jesus promises, you will know the truth about me. And if you hear that and you're being honest and you recognize my heart is not in that place, I do want to know the truth about Jesus, but my heart is not in this kind of surrendered place, then come before God and ask him to give you that heart. Ask God to give you a surrendered heart. Ask him to give you a heart that is willing to do his will regarding Jesus so that you can then proceed to know the truth about Jesus as you ought to know it. For Jesus is eager to make himself known to you. If you come to God and say, God, change my heart and give my heart, or give me a heart that desires to do your will above my own so that I can know the truth about Jesus and whatever you show me, Lord, I will to do with Jesus, I will, I will do that. I can't imagine God ever saying no to such a request or ignoring such a request. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, let your heart be tantalized by the promise of Jesus in verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. And the core essence of the teaching of Christ is that he is the Son of God come to earth to bring salvation to sinners and that he died on the cross and he was raised from the dead in order to Provide atonement to sinners who repent of their sins and confess their sins and their sinfulness to him and believe in him as their Lord and Savior. The will of God is that you believe in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Have you done that? Will you do that? Jesus presents himself to you today and You, every day, have a choice to make, and the most important decision you will ever make in your life is regarding what you will do with Jesus. You will live somewhere forever, and where you spend that forever will hinge on what you do with the Lord Jesus. I know some of you Some of you I don't know. Some of you I know well. Some I know, but not so well. I know one thing about all of you. I know the will of God for all of your lives. And I know that his will for you today and tomorrow and the next day is that you believe in Jesus. Will you submit to his good will? and enter into all of the ocean of good that is to be experienced downstream of believing in Jesus according to the will of your good God. Let's pray together and ask God to help us to, to do this. Lord, what a riveting dynamic moment this is in John's gospel that initially we're caught up in the moment in the temple and on the edge of our seats at what Jesus is doing and then before we know it he's talking straight into our own hearts and now we are in that throng of people together with the pilgrims and our hearts are being touched and convicted, but also given hope. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself as you have done. Thank you for revealing, in doing so, a heart that is so eager to save manifested in just how you reveal yourself even in our passage this morning. Lord, give us hearts that are open to you and to the truth that you speak and to the truth of who you are. And if there's selfishness and sin that is hindering our ability to see you as we ought to see you, Lord. Help us to confess that to you, that you might root that out of our hearts, that the scales could be removed from our eyes and our minds, and we can come to know the truth about you and about your teaching and then live in that each day growing in obedience and love for you through the miracles that you accomplish in us and if there's any in this room Lord that have never believed in you as their Lord and Savior. I just pray that through the words spoken this morning, you will touch their hearts and reveal yourself to them and save them today, even while they are here in this room. And should you do this work in my heart and in all of our hearts That we're asking for here, Lord. We'll give you all the praise. And we ask these things, Lord, in the name, the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said,